Turn to Matthew chapter 11, looking at verses 1 through 24. The topic there, Jesus tells his disciples they will suffer violence from human and demonic foes who oppose the gospel. The title of our message, The Violence of the Lambs. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for uh, the love of Jesus Christ and how he came and looked upon lost humanity, Lord, and uh, though he was despised and rejected of men, he died in their place. He died in our place and rose from the dead is coming again to take us home. I pray for the believers that are here today, Lord, that we would be super encouraged uh, by what we hear today, even though um, so much of it, Lord, involves uh, suffering and, and the reality of the world in which we live. And if there's anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, we know that the Holy Spirit is in this place to convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. And we pray that he would have his way in those hearts, that he would show them Jesus. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and everyone who agreed said, amen. Now, movies from the 1980s like Terminator or Die Hard, they were rated R at the time of their release, but if they were released today, they'd probably be rated PG-13. That's because PG-13 movies today really do contain more violence than the R-rated films of the 1980s, and that's according to a report recently published in the Journal of Pediatrics. Television and the gaming industry have their own rating systems. TV shows, for example, can carry letter ratings of D for suggestive dialogue, L for coarse or crude language, S for sexual content, or V for violence. As we read our text this morning, we're going to see that the world we live in as Christians has a rating of sorts. Jesus would rate it SV for spiritual violence. Look with me at verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, I'll explain the verse more fully in a moment, but it means that there are sinister spiritual foes and forces at work, both human and demonic, to oppose the message and the messengers of the gospel. Most of the time, we call this opposition spiritual warfare, and while that is an accurate biblical term, it doesn't go far enough in describing the effect this opposition has on us as believers. Spiritual warfare sounds almost romantic as we imagine ourselves locked in combat with the devil and his forces, wearing the full armor of God, wielding the sword of the Spirit. We see ourselves as champions out on the battlefield, maybe taking some hits, but giving as good as we get. Spiritual violence, well, that sounds more like I got ambushed and assaulted when I least expected it, and I'm left victimized, wounded, and confused. Now, we're going to see in the imprisonment of John the Baptist that spiritual violence can, in fact, cause us to doubt and to stumble, even to be offended with God. If you're honest, you'll admit you felt like that. If you haven't ever felt you were the victim of spiritual violence like that, just wait Your ambush is being planned. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, don't allow spiritual violence to stumble you. And number two, don't allow spiritual violence to silence you. First of all, in verses 1 through 15, don't allow spiritual violence to stumble you. Now, our key verse is verse 12, and it's by no means easy to interpret. Some teach that it means that the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing as godly believers press forward boldly sharing the gospel. One example is the New International Revised Version of the Bible. It reads like this, since the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven has been advancing with force and forceful people are taking hold of it. 
Now, that is a possible interpretation of the words. I've read a bunch of Greek scholars and guys that are smarter than all of us, and, and it depends on how you see the verb tense and which words you put in certain priority. But it seems more likely, and the majority of commentators feel, that Jesus was describing violent opposition to the kingdom of heaven. For one thing, it describes to a T the situation in this chapter, that of John the Baptist. He was currently suffering violence from those who opposed the gospel. He was in prison, and he would shortly be beheaded. Besides that, we're going to see that John's question at the beginning of this chapter suggests he thought the kingdom of heaven somehow had been halted by violence rather than it being uh, moved forward uh, by those taking hold of it. John was definitely a victim of spiritual violence, and as such, he can minister to each of us in this SV-rated world. And so we begin in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now at first, this verse seems like it should have been the last verse of the previous chapter, but when you read verse 2, you see that it sets up the question of John the Baptist. It, it does indeed end the thinking of chapter 10 where they go on this missionary campaign around Galilee, but it gives rise to John's question. Verse 2 says, when John the Baptist had heard in prison about those works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and he said to him, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? And so John had heard about this most recent campaign of Jesus's during which he and his disciples did many miraculous works. Thinking about those works, he now wondered if Jesus were the coming one, which is an official title of the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. John had predicted that Jesus would perform a work of judgment. His exact words were, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will clean out his threshing floor. Those were the words the Holy Spirit gave John to speak about the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus, however, was only going around doing works of compassion. After many of those works, he would tell people to keep quiet about him. He seemed anything but the coming one John had prophesied. Now, before we say anything else, we need to ask and answer the question, did John really have doubts about Jesus? John is such a great individual, and Jesus is going to say that he is in just a minute, that people don't like to think that someone of his stature could have doubts of this nature. And some say that he did not, and they say that the question that he posed to his disciples was for their benefit, sort of a rhetorical question, as if, hey, go, you know, they're asking him, is Jesus the one? And John says, well, go ask Jesus, and he'll let you know that he's the one. But John really did have doubts. I know that he did because when John's disciples get to Jesus and ask him the question, the Lord says to them in verse four, Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you see and hear. In other words, the Lord answered John. He understood this to be a sincere question from John, not his disciples, not that John was trying to teach his disciples anything, but that John was struggling. As a godly man, and as godly as was John the Baptist, he had come to a place of doubt. Well, it's not hard to see why. We gave you a few reasons already. He had identified Jesus as the coming one and that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. But now some time had passed and the kingdom had not come. Instead, John was in prison shortly to have his head cut off for speaking out publicly against the adulterous relationship between Herod Antipas and his brother's wife, Herodias. When you're the forerunner of the king 
and you're announcing the kingdom of heaven, the last thing you expect is to be thrown into a dungeon and beheaded. Things were not working out the way he might have anticipated. He was a victim of spiritual violence by those who opposed the message and the messengers of the gospel. Verse four, Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you see and hear. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. These phrases are almost exact quotes of passages all over the book of Isaiah that describe the works that would identify to Israel the coming Messiah, the coming one. They are the credentials of the Messiah of Israel, or at least you would have to say that whoever claimed to be the Messiah would have to do these works. Now, one quick note. Isn't it fascinating that the Lord equates preaching the gospel to raising the dead? In fact, if you see this in terms of a list, the number one thing that Jesus says is that the poor have the gospel preached. I mean, you and I, we would probably put this in a different order. We would say the poor have the gospel preached to them, the blind see, the lame walk, etc. but the Lord caps it off by the understanding that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is primary. God may validate the word in different places and at different times with signs and wonders, We don't believe that those gifts and those abilities have ceased, but we don't want to lose a focus on the fact that primarily we are to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, which raises spiritually dead individuals to newness of life. Now, Jesus answered John, but I have to ask, why didn't the Lord just say yes? So John gives him a yes or no question. You ever been in a situation? Maybe, I don't know if you've ever testified in court. I never have, but you know I've seen uh, lots of court TV, and so I know it must be true. But uh, they always ask people, and they say, just answer the question. You know, and you have to stick to these yes or no answers and stuff. And so John says, are you the coming one? Yes or no? And Jesus says, well, go tell John what you see. And then he gives this list of, of works, which is a little bit... Interesting because there were other prophets throughout the history of the Old Testament who did similar things. Not to the extent that Jesus was doing, but even Elijah, who, uh, you know, John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, he had raised the dead. And so Jesus doesn't really give him a straight answer. He gives him the answer, but it's not a straight answer. And I found God's answers like that to me over the years. There's an element of faith involved. God could easily give you a yes or no answer that would satisfy your curiosity, but it would do nothing to help you grow in your faith or grow in your relationship with him. And so if you're in a situation where you're waiting for God to say yes or no, and he just seems to be revealing different things, he shows you an area of scripture, and you think, well, what does that mean? That's good. He wants you to struggle. He wants you to seek him and to knock after him and to ask him to help you with those things because he wants to draw you into a deeper relationship and many times the circumstances of your life are the only way he can do it. Verse six says, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. This is where it gets real. Jesus recognizes that when his followers are victims of spiritual violence by enemies of the gospel, there is a tendency to become offended because of him. Another word would be stumbled. You're walking with the Lord and then you stumble and you feel like, you know, you're like that commercial, I've fallen and I can't get up because what's happening to you seems so intense. 
That is the sinister intent of spiritual violence. The devil and those taken captive by him to do his will, they assault you, they attack you in order that you will blame God, that you will be offended with him, that things didn't work out the way you planned or even that he promised. You take a look at your life and you think none of this is what I planned or what God promised to do. And you have to note with John, things weren't going to get any better for him. Yet Jesus said he would be blessed if he endured rather than becoming offended and stumbling. Now I have to admit there are a lot of things in my life that didn't or aren't working out the way we planned and even the way we think God promised. Over the years and up to today, violent spiritual forces have assailed us and many of you have that same testimony as well. We can be offended with God, we can be stumbled, or we can be blessed by looking at the Lord and his wonderful works, knowing that we're in a war with violent enemies, but that our God always ultimately redeems working all things together for the good. Verse seven, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Now, the crowd who heard this exchange between Jesus and John's disciples may have thought John was being rebuked by the Lord, or just knowing that John was having his doubts may have kind of hurt their opinion of John. Not at all. Turning to the crowd, Jesus reminded them of John's impact on the kingdom of heaven. John wasn't one given to vacillating. He wasn't one to quit when things got tough. No, he was a prophet and a mighty one at that. You know, when you've suffered spiritual violence, you feel anything but mighty because you have these feelings of doubt. You're stumbled and you're offended with God. You need to forget your own appraisal of your life and service and let the Lord speak to you. John's sole purpose in life, his entire ministry, was to announce that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and that Jesus was the coming one. He did that and he did it faithfully. I mean, think about the life of John the Baptist, how set apart it was from his mother's womb filled with the Holy Spirit, out in the wilderness living an ascetic life, wearing you know, camel skin and, and eating locusts, dipping them in natural honey. Oh, coming on the scene, rebuking the religious leaders, powerful ministry, telling people to repent, the kingdom of heaven was at hand, recognizing Jesus Christ, announcing him to the world. And now, not only was he in prison, but that kingdom that he announced and that Jesus was the king of was not going to be established anytime soon. From our point of view, it is a an abysmal failure, and yet Jesus begins a tremendous uh, declaration of praise for John the Baptist. God saw and he always sees further than we do. John was faithful, and that is what God requires of his servants. We can affect, but we cannot control the outcome of our serving the Lord. There are too many variables like the violent opposition of our enemies. So you, you guys know, you, you've been taught this. Jesus could have established the kingdom of heaven on the earth, but the Jews rejected it. And so God 
set the Jews aside for a time. He's still working with the Jews, but in a different way. Jesus established his church, which he's still establishing. One day he'll come and resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture living believers, and then his attention will be turned back to Israel, and he'll get back on this kingdom program until in his second coming, he will return, the Jews will accept him, and he will establish that kingdom. But John didn't know any of that. All John knew was that everything that he had been groomed for and everything that he stood for wasn't going to happen and he was going to have his head cut off on top of it. It's very interesting. And that's an understatement. Verse 10, for this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The the Lord draws from the Old Testament to establish that John was the forerunner. There's no mistake. And that he, Jesus, was the Messiah. I'm sure more people than just John were trying to reconcile the promises of God with the reality of the situation. Jesus was letting them know that for all the violence being done against both John and himself, God would redeem it ultimately for his glory. Verse 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. There are lots of reasons why John was greater. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets and the only one who saw Jesus Christ, who announced Jesus to the world. In that sense, he alone was greater than all of his predecessors. But for all that, even the least citizen of the kingdom is greater than the one who announces its coming. From this point on, even the least among believers would know more than any of the prophets who had come before, including John. You and I know more than John the Baptist knew. We have God's completed revelation in the word of God. Peter even says in one of his letters that the prophets prophesied and didn't know what they were talking about all the time. They desired to understand it, but it had not been fully revealed to them. You and I have the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We know how it's all going to end. And how all the pieces fit together. And so we are not greater in number necessarily or greater in character. We are greater in privilege than the Old Testament prophets. Verse 12, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. John and his message started something. His message was to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was an attack on the kingdom of this world and upon the ruler of the darkness of this world on Satan. It was like a declaration of war. One author put it like this. He says, Jesus is saying that his bringing of the kingdom of heaven has activated the kingdom of darkness into violent warfare on an unprecedented scale. What John was experiencing is one small fallout of this violent activity from the demonic kingdom against the kingdom of heaven. It's a spiritual violence that is ongoing and reaching into the lives of Christians. Verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. This phrase, the prophets and the law, summarizes everything contained in the Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament. This is Jesus' way of saying things were about to change. Either the prophesied kingdom would be established or if rejected, he would build his church Either way, it was the end of a spiritual era and the beginning of a new one. And he says in verse 14, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Old Testament in the book of Malachi, or as I like to think of it from an Italian point of view, Malachi, said that Elijah would precede the coming of the Lord. 
John came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, and if the Jews would have received Jesus as their king, John would have fulfilled that prophecy in a spiritual sense. As it is, we believe from reading the revelation of Jesus Christ that Elijah himself will physically return during the great tribulation preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ back to earth. He's gonna be one of the two witnesses presented to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. The other is probably Moses. We say that for a lot of different reasons. For one, they appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, talking about future plans. Uh, And so it just seems to make the most sense. Have you been the victim of spiritual violence? Are you victimized right now? A lot of you are. you You think of it as spiritual warfare, but you feel like you've been Ambush. You feel like you were on leave and, and, and all of a sudden the rug got pulled out from under you and you hit face first and you're bleeding all over the place. I mean, you don't know what's going on. Well, you should expect that. You should endure it. Don't stumble. Don't become offended with your Savior. The violent are here to deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a two-pronged strategy. Number one, get you stumbled at God. And number two, get you silenced so that you don't preach the gospel anymore. And that's the point that we move into now in verses 16 through 24. Don't allow spiritual violence to silence you. Jesus turns his attention to the generation of people he was seeking to reach with this offer of the kingdom of heaven. They didn't want to hear what he was saying. They refused to go along with his message of repentance and faith. The Jews wanted a king. They were waiting for their Messiah But when Jesus showed up, he wasn't the guy that they wanted. He wasn't the kind of Messiah they wanted. They didn't want to hear about repentance and faith. And and so they ignored him and eventually did violence against him. Verse 16, to what shall I liken this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance and then we mourned to you and you didn't lament. John came neither eating nor drinking. They said, ah, he's got a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Jesus compares the generation of Jews that he was among to spoiled children. Is there anything worse than a spoiled child? Yes, there is a spoiled adult. But for now, (laughs) spoiled children, they just, oh, man. If someone wanted to play a wedding game, Jesus said, with flutes and dancing, we don't want to do that right now. So they decided to play a funeral game and lament. Yeah, we don't want to do that right now. And so there was no pleasing this generation, no matter which direction you went. John the Baptist came along. He lived a simple, strict life out in the wilderness. Listening to him was like attending a funeral. John is the funeral in these verses. The Jews said, oh, that guy's got a demon. And therefore, you don't have to listen to his message anymore. A few weeks ago, we talked about this, how non-believers, they say the stupidest things. My dad used to say, if you read the Bible too much, you'll go crazy. So, he didn't read the Bible at all, obviously. You know, who wants to go crazy? And, and, and all, you just wipe out in biblical Christianity, wiped out. Any need for Jesus, wiped out. And so these people, John, yeah, you know, he was a flash in the pan. We went out there, but he's got a demon. That's it. Well, it's stupid. 
but they didn't have to consider his message anymore. Jesus, just the opposite, he attended dinners and parties with sinners. They called him a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners. That way they didn't have to play along with his message either. His ministry was like going to a wedding. And so these are people you just can't please them. Now what's interesting is that Jesus and John had the exact same message. They both came on the scene saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said that, his disciples said that. They just said it different ways. They mingled with people different ways. And that's what it means about God's wisdom. It was on display in the very different styles of John and Jesus. They were both his children in the sense that they belonged to him and were sent out by him, but they did the ministry very differently. You know, by any and every style possible, God was seeking men, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to eternal life. There are a lot of ministry styles, all the way from the strict style of John to the spontaneous Jesus style and everything in between. As long as we remain true to the word of God, style is not important. As long as a person holds to the essential doctrines of biblical Christianity, realizes its truths are not negotiable, the way we present the gospel is wide open. It's, you know, don't get stumbled by style. Get stumbled by substance. What amazes me is that so much, so much time and effort is spent by Christians about style, music and how people dress and you know whether they're reverent enough and all that. And then those same people will buy into doctrinal errors that are incredibly obvious. And so be a person of substance, not style. The Jews were like spoiled children who would not listen, who would not play along with God's program for them. He wanted to establish the kingdom, but they had to repent and believe on Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, Jesus continued to go about their cities and towns and villages preaching the gospel, doing mighty works, those that the coming one would do. He was not silenced by their opposition until they killed him. Verse 20, then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon and the godless city of Sodom would have repented had they seen the miracles Jesus and his disciples performed. Capernaum had been exalted to heaven by being privileged to have the Messiah live there. It was Jesus' base of operations. Five of the ten miracles recorded in Matthew 8 and 9 were performed in Capernaum. Yet her greater privileges only brought greater responsibilities and greater judgment. Now, Jesus understood there was a day of judgment coming and that there was heaven to gain and what he calls Hades to avoid. Hades is described by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke as a temporary abode for the dead who die in unbelief. And so if you're a non-believer and you die, you are conscious and awake spiritually in Hades and you're awaiting uh, the resurrection of your body at the end of the uh, you know, current uh, earth age, at which time you'll be judged and thrown alive into the lake of fire. And so that's kind of the sequence of events. 
in light of the incredible, serious internal consequences for non-believers, we cannot allow spiritual violence against us to silence us. We're the messengers who are to take the message of the gospel as we are going throughout the world. Eternal destinies hang in the balance. We need to press on despite the violence. And so that's the, that's the situation that we're in. I hate to be the one that always tells you these things. You go and watch Joel Osteen and get the other side, I guess, but he's a heretic, and so you don't want to do that. I, I mean, I, I would love to, uh, if I could find positive messages, you know, that uh, would tell you that nothing, wrong, nothing bad is ever going to happen to you, and uh, everything's going to be great, you're going to be filled with health and wealth and prosperity, man, I would love to do that, but the truth is, as soon as you became a Christian, you became a target and you're the subject of assault and ambush attempts throughout your Christian walk. And yes, it is spiritual warfare, but it's, it's sometimes, it's ugly and it's bloody and it's nasty sometimes. It's not like, you know, the stories you hear of the, the armies that break for Christmas and have Christmas with each other and then go back to fighting each other. If you think that's what the devil wants to do, then you're wrong. He has strategies that would blow your mind and, and many of you have, have been subject to those things and are even today. And you know what? I, I am so encouraged that John the Baptist went through this and doubted, was stumbled, was beginning to be offended and Jesus said, oh, John, you were faithful and that's all that God requires of you. Be faithful. You, you, you can't control the outcome. Everything looks terrible right now. There's no kingdom right now. It's gonna, it's gonna be, I mean, it, you know, could, if Jesus could have just said, John, it, it, everything's gonna be all right. In 2,000 plus years, everything's gonna work out. But he didn't. And that's, that's the thing about the Lord. Don't you want him to say, don't you want him to just go to John and say, John, it's, hey, come on, let me, let me give you the revelation of Jesus Christ right now ahead of time. Let me tell you what exactly is going on. But he didn't. He just said, Tell John the works that I'm doing. Because there is an element of faith in all of this. There is a walk of faith. There is a work of faith in our hearts. And so I hope this ministers to you this morning. When you suffer violence, be encouraged by this declaration of the Apostle Paul, no stranger to spiritual violence. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul was no stranger to violence, and you see that in these words. He rose above those circumstances, trusting God for an ultimate outcome. Nothing could silence him. At the cross, Jesus vanquished our enemy, but what he has achieved has not yet been manifested. The devil and his demons fight on. The outcome of the war is settled, but there are battles to be fought for the souls of men who are perishing. One author said, as sure as the Lord came the first time to defeat his cosmic enemy and our oppressor in principle, just as certainly he shall return again to defeat him in fact. One parting thought, John doubted, Jesus defended him, or we would say he rose to the role of an advocate for John. 
he defended John in front of this crowd and in front of his father and he said, essentially to me what he said was, of course there are gonna be times in your life when there is doubt because this is serious business, but look at your life the way God looks at it. As a work in progress, he who has begun a good work will do what? He will perform it, he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together.